All right. Well, good morning, Two Cities Church. How is everybody? Good. What a, what a great video. That's the Cox family. They're just one of many families. They like them on our, there's a lot of families like them in our church. What I mean by that is when we moved here, you know, uh, six years ago, we had 30 people. They moved. I've told you a story before. They moved with us from Raleigh, Durham. I mean, imagine you moving from Raleigh, Durham. Some of you did. You're here now, but we had, we had about 30 people move with us. We had 70 people that were in Winston said, we want to be a part of this thing that's going to become Two Cities Church. And we're going to be a part of the launch team. And let me just tell you this, that uh, all 100 of those people had the same posture of heart that the Cox family had, which is we're going to be all in with our time. We're going to be all in with our talent. We're going to be all in with our treasure. And right, because when you think about like, how do churches like this happen? Well, there's always divine reasons for that. There's human reasons. One of the human reasons would we just had a core committed key group of people who said that's the posture of our heart. And what I hope you heard in that video is what motivates the Cox family, what motivates them to be generous. And it's the gospel, right? It's, here's, here's the way we'd say it here. Grace turns you into a giver. That's what it does. When you realize who God really is, the God of the Bible, you realize he's a giver and he's a forgiver, right? He's a giver. I mean, what did he give us? Well, how about all of creation? Isn't that an interesting thought? Uh, God created the entire world and it's him and it's his son, Jesus, and it's the Holy Spirit. And I don't know exactly how it happened. We don't get every detail. But at one point they decided we want to share this with everybody. It's like, wow, that's unbelievably generous. And then when you understand what do we sing about what do we celebrate? What are we most excited about? It's the cross of Christ. And what is that? That's God being generous toward us. He gave his first, he gave his best, he gave his only. And so here's what we see with God, that when you love, you give, right? You, you can give without loving. People do that. Every once in a while people give because uh, who knows why people give. People give because of duty. People, people give out of guilt. People give to soothe their conscience. But here's the truth. Uh, you can give without loving, but it's impossible to love without giving, right? What happens every time some guy falls in love with some girl? He becomes a giver. All of a sudden, he's like, I'll, I'll, I'd like to buy dinner. And if, he, and if he really loves her, he's like, I'd like to buy you a very expensive ring. And I'd love to share with, you, share with you all that God has given me. It's like, that's what happens. What happens with every parent, with their kid? As soon as the kid's born, it's like, you just become a giver. Do you know that they say the, the average kid is gonna cost you a million dollars by the time they graduate? Some of you are like, wow, yeah. It's like, why do you do that? Why do you sacrifice so much? It's like, well, I just love my kids, and so I'm a giver. And so what we're going to see today, if you'll type two, turn to 1 Chronicles 28 and 29. we got a lot to cover. We're going to try to go quickly, kind of fly over it. Uh, we get the last picture of David, and here's what's interesting. The last picture of David is David as a giver, David as a generous person. And I'm going to meet you in 1 Chronicles 28 uh, in just a few minutes, but let me tell you kind of the background. Catch us all up, because this is going to be the last sermon in this series. And I told you this before, I never think in terms of sermons or Sundays, but entire series. And what we've seen is the milestones and the moments and the mountaintops and the seasons and the stages of David. And so when we first meet David, he's a young boy. He's like, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And we talked about how David is different from our culture and David avoids the temptations of youth. And what are the temptations of youth? Well, it's to give your youth and your strength to evil instead of good, right? It's to let your life be about the cheap, instantaneous pleasure. And this is what like basically every college student at Wake University, Wake Forest University is doing. It's like, what are they doing? Well, they're getting drunk and they're breaking commandments. It's like, well, that's what they're doing. And some people never escape that, right? You meet some guy and he's 30 years old and he's still living for cheap pleasure. And now he's just playing video games in his mom's basement covered in Cheeto dust. Okay, but it's the same thing. So he said, we want to avoid that. And then as you get older, you have other opportunities, right? You enter midlife and midlife has its own temptations. And we saw actually David didn't do well midlife. That's when he sleeps with Bathsheba. That's when he kills Uriah. That's when he forgets about God for a year or 18 months. 
But now we're at David, the end of David's life. And David is 70. And here's why this is important for us. He's somewhere in his 70s. Now, some of us in here are already in our 70s or 80s, but, but a lot of us aren't there yet. But this is why this is an important message. This is an end of life message. This is like, how do I end well? If you can say, if you kind of want to write, like, what's the big idea for this message? It's how do you live a great life and leave a great legacy? How do you live a great life and leave a great legacy? Not just have a good time, but how do you have a good life? And David's gonna be a picture of that. And this is important for everyone, whether you're 14 or you're 40 or whatever, somewhere in between. It's like, here's why this is important for all of us. Because we live in a culture that teaches you and people act like they're never going to get past 40 years old. People make decisions about their health. They make decisions about their relationships. They make decisions about their money. They make decisions about their schedule and they act like they're never gonna get past 40. So like, you don't wanna have kids. It's like, you don't wanna have kids? Kids are half your life. And you'll realize that when you turn 40. It's like, so people just don't think this way. And so I want us to learn from David because we're all going to be there one day and we would like to end well, right? Let, let me tell you the temptations at the end of life, okay? These are the temptations as you get older. Every, like we said, this every season and stage has temptations. The temptation at the end of your life is number one to coast. Have you ever met those people? It's like, they, it's some kind of, they don't say this out loud or maybe they do. It's like, well, I already spent my time. I raised my kids. I worked my career, I served, I did it. It's time for me just to, well, what? From a Christian perspective, just chill out for the next 20 years before you meet Jesus face to face? It's like, okay, listen, it's okay to retire from your job, but we can't retire from life. You can't retire from the Great Commission. So some people, they coast. Uh, other people become unbelievably critical. Have you ever met those people? They're just bitter. They're usually bitter because of how they live their life. You can, this is the old guy telling the kids to get off his grass, right? <laughs> He's just bitter, he's resentful. He's, he has, he's usually what happens is his life is full of regret. And there's lots of reasons to have your life be full of regret at the end. And basically you should know this too. Most people, when they do studies of like, what do you regret? People always regret what they failed to do more than what they did. So that would be good to know. So they, I should have dated her. I should have bought that house. I should have taken that job. I should have gotten that education. I should have taken that risk. I should have gone to that place. So there's some people who they're critical. There, there's, there's some people who, um, they coast, and then there's other people who they just consume, right? And it looks different and you get in your 60s and 70s. It looks more like having a very extensive bucket list. That's all about you. It's like, well, fine, have a bucket list, fair enough. But maybe put some good things on the bucket list. Like, I'd like to see my you know, grandkids get baptized, and I'd like to have a deep relationship with my grandkids, and I'd like to impart something to the next generation, and I'd like to go on multiple mission trips, and, well, that would be great. And, and so with David, he's at the very end of his life. And, and part of what we're reminded to today is that life is short. I don't know if you ever heard of the app We Croak. Have you heard of this app? Okay, it's a, it's a Buddhist app. I'm not saying I recommend it, okay? Um, but it's an interesting app that became popular. And what this app does is you just download it and all it does is randomly throughout the day remind you you're going to die. <laughs> so you're putting the kids to bed or I don't know, you're fighting with your wife. It's like, you're gonna die. It's like, oh, okay, maybe I should figure this out, okay? Uh, right, because that's kind of what happens. So, so life is short, you're gonna die. And so, so the question is, how do you avoid the temptations of life? Or how do you avoid the temptations of old age? And, and and I learned this from somebody else, because you might look at me and go, well, how would you know how to avoid the temptations of old age? It's like, well, fair enough, I'm 38, or be 38 next month. Um, the way that you avoid this is, well, I, I learned this from an older godly man. He's a, he's a guy who's using his wealth and his property and his influence, even into his 80s to help multiple generations of people. And, and I got him alone one time and I said, some version of, I'd like to be you. Like you're 80 and you're just vibrant and you love your family and you just, you're not bitter. And, and, and I said, how do I become you? And the interesting thing is, his answer was amazing, I'm gonna tell you in a second, but the, the most amazing thing is he didn't even need to think about it. I guess if you already you know, think about things, you don't have to think about it anymore. He knew, he knew the answer. Here's what he said. He goes, Kyle, the way to, to last long, the way to finish well is that your dreams always have to be bigger than your memories. Isn't that not, right? 
Now, we're not against having memories, right? I'm trying to put attention and airbag around all this. We're not against memories. But the older people get, what do all they do is talk about? The good old days, right? When your kids were in the home, when you fought the war, when you started your business. It's like, well, fair enough. And those are all good things. And pass those on to your kids and grandkids. And we need stories of the past. But we need to have a dream for the future. And so what David's going to do, we're going to see in this last two chapters, is David is going to do four things, and I'm going to give them to you right now, and then we're going to pack them. He's going to do four things to live a good life and leave a good legacy, okay? The first thing is he's going to have a God dream. A God dream is a dream that, of something you want to do for God. We'll look at that. Second, he's going to be a spiritual father to others. Powerful. Third, he's going to give people a clear plan of what to do when he's gone. And number four, he's going to have a generous heart. That's the whole message. How do you live a good life? How do you leave a good legacy? Well, you have to have a God dream. You have to be a spiritual father or mother. You have to look for spiritual fathers and mothers. You have to have a clear plan, and you have to have a generous heart. Let's look at this. If you look at verse 20, or chapter 28, verse 1, here's what it says. David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials. By the way, you'll see he's pulling the leaders together. All the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that serve the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the kings and his sons, together with all the palace officials and mighty men and all the seasoned warriors. Just really quickly, so David can't gather everybody, so what do you do when you can't gather everybody? You gather the leaders, right? He's doing what every good leader knows how to do. It's, I lead in concentric circles. If there's something important that needs to get out, I make sure you know, the people who need to know most know first, okay? So the, a kind of a classic example would be like, I don't know, so say you get pregnant. It's like, well, who should you tell first? Well, hopefully your husband. Okay, tell him, okay. All right, great. And then after you tell him, you might say, well, who are we going to tell? Well, let's wait till six weeks or 12 weeks and we'll tell our parents. And then we'll tell our friends at 20 weeks and we'll put it on Facebook at 30 weeks. It's like, well, fair enough. What you're trying to figure out is this is important information. Everybody doesn't need to know at once. We want people to find out in the right order. And so what David realizes is as the leaders of a nation go or the leaders of a church go or the leaders of a business go, so the entire business goes. So he gets all the leaders. Now, part of it's practical too. There's not microphones back then, right? He's not gonna be able to get thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people to hear him. So he gets a couple hundred people that are leaders and he explains some things to them. And look what he does. Look at verse two, he says this. Then King David rose to his feet. And if you read 2 Samuel, you also realize he had a lot of health issues. So this probably wasn't easy for him to do. This is his final speech, both to his son and to the people. Then King David rose to his feet and said, hear me, my brothers and my people, I had it in my heart. What is your heart? It's the seat and center and sum of who you are. That's what it is. He said, I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark. So David is known for doing two things spiritually in his lifetime. The first, two significant spiritual things. The first was bring the ark back to the center of Israel and put worship at the center of the people of God. The second is prepare for the temple to be built. So here's what he says. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for a footstool to, of our God. And I made preparations for the building. So David says something, I had this in my heart. Let me ask you kind of a question that might be a little, that might be a little strange. What has God put in your heart? What is in your heart? I, I don't know that most people know what's in their heart, right? I mean, most of us were really good. You're really good at talking on the phone when you're driving. You're really good at listening to podcasts. You're really good at watching TV shows. You're really good at being on your devices. You're really good at talking to other people. Most of us are not very good at knowing our own heart. Now, how do you know your own heart? Well, it's not easy. Probably the main way is through personal prayer with God because I don't know, you're praying about your marriage. Like, oh, that's what's in my heart about my marriage. You're praying about your kids. You're praying about your health. You're praying about your career. And then you, well, then you find out what's in your heart. Now, I love what David says in verse two. He's 70 and he said, I had it in my heart to do something great for God. No matter what age you are, let me ask you that. Do you want to do something great for God? 
I hate to say that I think the average answer for the average, I'm talking Christian, real genuine Christian. The average Christian, so maybe you, you don't really want to do something great for God. Here's what you would like. You would like to be liked and you'd like to be comfortable. And sorry, those are the exact opposite realities in life if you want to be meaningfully used by God. You're not going to be comfortable and everybody's not going to like it. And I love what David said. David said, I had something great in my heart. What, what, what's great in your heart? Do you want to, I don't know, do you want to build some business that's going to honor God and serve others? Do you want to have a great family legacy and raise your kids to love the Lord? It's like, what, what are the great things that you would want to do for God? So he says, I had this thing in my heart I wanted to do for God. Now look what he says here in verse three. In verse three, he says this, but God said to me, you may not build a house for my name. For you are a man of war and have shed blood. Now, this is interesting. Sometimes you want to do something great for God and it doesn't happen, at least in your lifetime. You'll meet people like that. I, you know, sometimes you meet someone, they're in their 40s or 50s, I don't know, and they say something like, it was in my heart to get married. Like, I wanted to do that. I wanted to share my life with someone and for some reason it hasn't happened. Or you meet couples. I just met a couple after last service. It's like, we have it in our heart to, to, to have kids and we're just, for some reason, we're not able to have kids and even adoption's not working out right now. We don't know what's going on in our life. We have a good desire, but for some reason, it's not happening right now. So he, he basically says this. Now, here's the thing. What do you do when the desires of your heart are not being met the way that you want it to be met? Maybe you have something you want to do for God and, and it doesn't happen. Look at what he does in verse four. He says this, yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader and in the house of Judah, my father's house. And among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all of Israel. So here's what you do. When you realize, man, I'm not gonna get to do what I wanted to do with my life. Some, and you realize that, usually you realize that the older you get. There's certain desires that I wanted to have happen that aren't happening. There's dreams I wanted to have happen that didn't, have, that, that didn't end up happening. Well, what, one of the things that you do is you, first of all, you have a perspective of man, actually, well, I'm part of something bigger than myself. So this is what David's saying. Well, he, and he basically, he begins to be thankful for the things God's allowed to happen in his life. So he says, well, God did choose me to be king. See, what happens in your life when things are going bad, you forget the good things that, have, that God has done in your life. This is part of the human condition. Part of the human condition is for some reason, and I don't know why this is, we are more sensitive to negative emotion than we are to positive emotion of the same amount. Give, let me give you an example. So I don't know, say you have Verizon or say you have AT&T and say, um, you know, they messed up on your bill and they gave you 50 bucks back. Sorry about that. Now you got 50 bucks you didn't know you're gonna have. You're like, you're pretty happy about that. If you lose 50 bucks to Verizon on something that you shouldn't be paying, you will be on the phone for three hours with somebody in India. Try, try, I wanna talk to your superior, right? You're, you're, it's like you are just so frustrated by a loss way, way more than you are by a win. And so what he says is, I wanna be unbelievably grateful. I'm part of a bigger story, right? We say this here all the time. We're not the main characters in the story. We're supporting characters. The story includes me that God's writing, but the story's not ultimately about me and I play my part. But here's what's help, helpful. He moves from just thinking about himself to thinking about his son. L look what he does in verse five. He says this, and of all my sons, for the Lord's given me many sons, he's chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, it is your son, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. So maybe here's a way to think about it. And as we're a church family, we wanna, this will apply to all of us in different ways, okay? Because we're all in different stages. Sometimes you're David and sometimes you're Solomon. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes you're David and what does David mean? It's like, well, I wanna do something I'm not getting to do it. And one of the things you do when you're David is you, if, you, if there's something in your life you wanna do that you're not getting to do, you would wanna help other people have that opportunity. Uh, like I got a friend and he's a pastor of a church somewhere else and it's a successful church and I was talking to him and, and um, 
he said, man, you know, one, one of the passions in his heart, I said, how's the church going? He goes, it's going well. He said, but really what I want to be is a missionary. He said, but his wife's sick, and his wife has all these allergy things, and they can't figure out what's going on, and the missions agency won't send them because his wife's sick. And so here he is. He's like, man, I, I, I can't be a missionary. So what does he want to do? He wants to help be a church that sends lots of missionaries. It's like, I can't do this. I want to help other people be successful in this area. So, so sometimes you're David, you don't get to do something. Sometimes, and this is the humbling thing, and this is a, some of your stories, and you just need to be thankful and realize this. Sometimes you get to be Solomon. It's like you get to do what your parents have been praying that they would get to do, and they never got to do it, right? What's the story of human history? Let me tell you the story of human history in like 30 seconds. Everybody before you sacrificed unbelievably so that you could enjoy what you're enjoying right now. Like the most of human history, almost like every Christian like suffered and sacrificed enormously so that we could finally worship publicly and openly. It's like everybody was just giving their whole lives so that one day a generation can do what we're doing. On a real personal note, we kind of feel this as a church. I say this in all humility. We feel like Solomon. We feel like, listen, by the way, there is no Solomons without Davids. It's like, look, there were Davids in our city for years praying, Lord, would there be a movement of God? We're not saying we're the only movement. We're not saying we're the main movement. We're not saying things started with us. I'm simply saying that the amount of baptisms we're seeing, the amount of churches that we're helping to plant, the amount of missionary partnerships, the, the, the amount of conversions that we're seeing, the, the building of a building in downtown. I mean, we are, we are getting to do something unbelievably unique. And so what he does is he begins to, he begins to think about Solomon. Look what he says in verse eight. Now, therefore, he, he challenges his son. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave an inheritance to your children after you forever. So here's the language of legacy. Do you see that? You wanna live a good life and leave a good legacy. Now, what is a legacy? The, a legacy is the enduring impact you leave on those you leave behind. That's what a legacy is. Now, a legacy is one of two things. A legacy is something you leave for people or a legacy is something you leave in people. Now, how do most Americans think of a legacy? They mostly think of legacy as what I leave for people. And that's really, really helpful. If you ever met some guy who got to, gets to inherit his dad's or grandfather's business, whew, he's way ahead of everybody else. So, well, somebody else did all the hard work to, and now you, you figured out all the systems and structures and everything's done and so, and we have all these employees and you have our last name, so you get to take this over. It's like, whoa. Or somebody leaves you a massive inheritance or somebody's just, you know, hey, we got a piece of property. And so there's a lot of things that, I mean, we don't want to underplay the, the power of leaving something for people. But I think it's more powerful and more lasting to leave something in people, right? And, and what are those? Those are, well, it could be vices. That could be negative. It could be values and virtues. Hopefully it's faith. It's like, well, how do you pass along your faith? That's what you want to do. It's like, I wanna pass along a vision and view of God and worship. And here's how you pass along faith. Your faith has to be passionate and it has to be practical. That's the only faith that gets passed along. It's like mom and dad are passing along this faith to, to our kids and it's because we're passionate about it. When you see dad or mom reading the Bible, we're not just reading the Bible, we're seeking God. Like we don't wanna, pa I don't wanna pass on to my kids or to somebody a boring belief system. Here, here's all the beliefs that Christians have. Just make, here, make sure you agree with these before you go to college. It's like, no, I wanna pass on a life with God. I wanna pass on a vision of knowing Christ and making him known. But then it has to be a real practical faith, right? The only faith that's gonna work is, and be really passed on is a faith that like, oh, this is, it actually affects mom and dad's money. It makes our marriage richer. It makes our relationships deeper. It gives us meaning and purpose in life. And so what Solomon is gonna do is, or David is gonna do is he's gonna pass this faith on to Solomon. Look, look at what he does in verse nine. He says this, and you... Solomon, my son, 
know, this is a personal word he speaks to Solomon, know the God of your father. Not know about him, know him. Know the God of your father and serve him. Notice that knowing God always comes before serving God, right? Religion says serve God and you might know him. The gospel says know God, you'll be overwhelmed by his grace and you'll serve him in response. It says, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. I love this because he moves from, I have a God dream. I have a vision of something I want to see happen in my life and through my life. And now he talks to his son and he ends up being to his son, a spiritual father. Now being a father is unbelievably important in this society because we live in, I've told you this before, we live in a fatherless nation. I mean, from the best we can tell, and it's probably worse than this, is 43% of kids go to bed tonight with no dad in the house, no father figure in the house, no stepdad in the house. And I saw this in a kind of a really sad way recently in an interesting way. When I heard about a YouTube channel, maybe you've seen this or you followed this YouTube channel. There's a YouTube channel called Dad, How Do I? And it was started by a guy that he, he was a good dad. He had a couple kids. And, but I guess from what I could tell, he didn't have a dad. And he knew what it was like to grow up with that, out of dad. And, and he saw himself being a good dad, but saw so many kids that didn't have a dad. So he starts this channel, Dad, How Do I? Well, it now has 4 million subscribers. And I went on and I looked, what are the most popular videos? Number one most popular video, dad, how do I shave? And I just thought, how sad? Because I remember watching my dad shave and being interested. And that's what every five or six year old asked her dad. Dad, what, you know, can I have a razor? No, not yet, you know, no. <laughs> Come back when you're 16, you know. But it's like, um, you know, or, or the second most video, watch video was dad, how do I tie my tie? I thought, well, that's sad. Because I, I mean, my dad, I watched that. I, I was fascinated with that as a kid, wanting to learn how to do that. You have no one in the house, you have to watch a YouTube video because you got no one to invest in you. What is a dad? A dad is like a good tailwind, right? A dad helps you go further faster. When I flew to India the first time, you know, it was 15 hours there, it was 13 hours back. It was the same, same destination going back and forth. What was the difference? Well, a tailwind. You know, what is a dad? A dad is, a, you can think of a dad this way. A dad is like a backstop, right? So if you meet a guy and he's insecure, this isn't every time, but most times. When I meet a guy, he's insecure. He's insecure about how he looks. He's insecure about his job. He's not driven in life. He's afraid to date a woman. It's like nine out of 10 times, you don't have a dad. I get it. And he makes you gracious to that person. It's like, because what a dad says is, well, go out there and I'm behind you. Start your business. I'll help you. Take some risks. I mean, don't be foolish, but I'll, I'll help you. And so what we see with David, if you look at verse nine, I want to look, I want to read this one more time to you. Uh, this is a good mixture of what a dad should do. Look, he says, and Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. So he encourages him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. He warns him and challenges him. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Um, what's interesting here is, um, he, I think in the, that verse, that, that little passage right there, you see kind of a microcosm or a summary of what a dad, a spiritual dad or a dad, should do for the next generation, Okay. And now at one level, maybe a mom does it too, but think about it this way. The spirit of mom, okay? The spirit of a mom is more this spirit. You're always accepted at home. Come back home, stay as long as you would like. If you messed up, I accept you. I'm always going to love you and I'm always going to forgive you. That's kind of, that's good. And that's the spirit of mom. And the spirit of dad is, get out of here. <laughs> I mean, as soon as possible, you know, I love you. Go do something with your life, please. Um, and you need that. And so what's interesting is, but the spirit of dad needs to be, we see it with Solomon, it needs to be both encouragement and challenge. 
And encouragement's really important because so many men get so little encouragement in their lives, especially if they didn't have a dad, right? It's like, well, what does society tell the average man today? Well, you know, I don't know. The average guy shows up on college campus. It's like, uh, you're a white, middle-class, heterosexual man. You're the problem in the world. And the guy's like, uh, I'm 18. <laughs> Maybe I'm the problem, I don't know. Guys need encouragement. Basically, guys need something like you catch them doing the right thing and you say, did you know you're good at that? Did you know that when you talk, people listen? Did you know that you're uniquely good at math and you're able to calculate things really quickly? Do you know that you're good at sales? Do you know that you have a kind heart and you just encourage that? And men, they're looking for that. Most men have like none of that in their life. And if you just give them just like a little bit of it, they're like, wow. Okay, I'll do more of that. Thanks a lot. No one ever told me I was good at that. So you need encouragement, but you also need challenge. Now, challenge is hard because you got to get that right balance when you're discipling someone, when you're investing in the next generation, when you're being a dad, because, you know, if you just overly encourage, it's not helpful. Just over and over, it becomes flattery. It's not really even true. If you overly challenge, you feel like you're in the military. So no one wants to live in that household. So what do you do if your son comes home with a B minus on his math test? Well, it probably depends on your son, right? I don't know, maybe he's not very good at math and he tried really, really hard and you go, well, great job, man. You're not gonna be an engineer, but great job. <laughs> We're gonna put you down this other path, but I'm really proud of you because I know how hard math is and I know how hard you worked. Or maybe it's challenge. It's like, come on, man, you're way better than this. Which that's unbelievably life-giving, actually. If you, say that, if you love the person, you say that. You're actually really better than this. And I, I know how smart you are. And I know you've not been working hard. And I need you to work harder because I need you to be the best you can be so that you can honor God and help people. So, wow, okay, that's what I need to hear. And so this is what Solomon does. He encourages his son and he challenges his son. He warns him, right? He tells him to know and love God. He tells him to work hard. He tells him to be strong and be courageous. But then look what he does in verse 11. Verse 11 says this, then David gave Solomon his son the plan. Isn't this awesome? Basically, hey, son, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna encourage you, and then I'm gonna give you a plan. In fact, go down to verse 19. In verses 11 through 20, he reads the plan in great detail. In verse 20, it says this. And this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord. This plan is from God's word. All the work to be done according to the plan. So, okay, what do you, if you're gonna invest in the next generation, if we're gonna be a multi-generational church, if we're gonna live a good life and leave a good legacy, we have to have God dreams, things we wanna see happen. Okay, we need to be spiritual fathers or we need to find spiritual fathers. And then here's the thing, we have to have a clear plan. Do you see that he gives him a plan? Do you know that that's what you need in life? That's what you need in all of life. Like in every area of your life, every person starts out as a novice. Like how would you know to walk with God? How would you know how to walk with God? It's like, you're not gonna know. How are you gonna know to study your Bible? Well, you, someone's gonna have to teach you. You're not gonna know how to study your Bible. How are you gonna know how to pray and intercede for people and seek the Lord in prayer? Well, you're not going to know naturally. How are you gonna know how to do an interview for a job? You probably won't. How will you know to put a good resume together? You probably don't know how. How would you know how to court a woman? You won't. How would you know how to get married and stay married? You definitely don't know that. How would you know how to raise kids? How would you know how to buy a house or build wealth? It's like, well, the answer is like, you're not gonna know any of that. That's why you need a plan. And the best thing that we can do for the next generation is just help them, give, give them some type of plan, right? From God's word. It's like, and I tell people this all the time. It's like, if you don't know what to do, here's what you should do. Do what every other person has always done. Find some other great people and see how they live their lives. 
and read scripture and make a plan. It's like, here's the thing. A plan is how you know you're serious about something in your life, right? Uh, let me give you an example. So a friend of mine, not in this church, he's in a different church, actually in a different city, and, and he's fairly overweight. And, uh, and he told me, I'm gonna see him in October. He said, um, I wanna lose 30 pounds. This is, it probably would be like a five or six month window to do this. He goes, so it's realistic. He goes, I wanna lose 30 pounds by the time I see you in October. I said, great. And I said, what's your plan? And I could tell he didn't have a plan. He said, my plan is to watch what I eat. I thought, that, look at it before you put it in your mouth? I mean, what? <laughs> what do you mean watch what you eat? That's not a plan. That's a plan to fail. A plan is I'm stepping on the scale every morning at 7 a.m. to see if I'm making any progress. A plan is I'm telling 10 people who are close to me so that when I'm eating with them, they're gonna be watching. And I feel the healthy peer pressure I need to feel to do this. A plan is I'm making a list of food I'm not eating for the next four months. A plan is I'm putting together some workout routine, no matter how pathetic it is, because I haven't worked out in a long time, but it's gonna be something that I'm going to do. It's like, well, now we have a plan, right? It's like the plan for your health can't be, I'm gonna buy sweatpants with an elastic waistband and see how things work out, <laughs> right? What is, well, let me ask you, I mean, because you're either making plans or you're making excuses. What is your plan for your finances, right? Most people's plan for their finances is like, let's just spend what we have and hope we keep making more money. It's like, that's not a plan. Most people's plan for discipling their kids is, well, let's just bring them to church when we're in town. It's like, that's not a plan. It's like, you need, you need a plan for your marriage. You need a plan for your career. A plan is how do I make it from point A to point B? And what I love with Solomon is he gives them a plan and he prays for them. We believe in both here, planning and praying. What is planning? Book of Proverbs. What is praying? Book of Psalms, right next to each other. We need them both. It, it, think of them as two oars, right? Uh, and you're paddling your canoe. What do you do if you just have one oar? If you just have prayer, or you just have planning. Have you ever paddled with one oar on one side of the boat? You're like, hey, I'm exerting a lot of energy. I'm going nowhere. And I feel like I'm going in circles. You are going in circles. And that's how people feel if they only pray about things. And that tends to be more common in the charismatics, Pentecostal circles, let go and let God, and prayer is an excuse for me not to do anything. Probably more around us, it's more planning, right? You've ever meet people and it's like, well, you've wrecked your life like six times. It's, well, yeah, yeah, you had plans. They just weren't submitted to scripture. They weren't wise. They weren't thoughtful. They weren't in community. They weren't prayed over. So he gives them a plan. He gives them prayer. But then I want you to see what he does in verse 21. If you go down to verse 21, here's what he says. And behold, the divisions of priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God and with you in all the work will be every willing man who has skill for any kind of service, also the officers and all the people who will be holy at your command. I love this. How do you live a good life? How do you pass on a good legacy? Well, okay, you need to give your kids and the people you're discipling and others, it'd be helpful if you gave them a plan. The second thing that'd be helpful is if you prayed for them, of course. And the third is if you connected them to the right people. Do you see that's what he's doing? Hey, I gotta go, but here's, I'm not gonna be around much longer, but here's the people you need to know when I'm gone. Now, if you're not you know, at your end of life, it's like, well, here's the people you need to know right now. Why do we have age and stage ministries? If you don't know what that means, that means like, why do we have a kid's ministry and a middle school ministry and a high school ministry and a college ministry? It's like, you don't have to be a part of our age and stage ministries, but I would encourage you to get your family connected because it's like, well, what do you want? It's like, I would like other families like us that I could be friends with that would hold us accountable. I would love my kids. I'd love my daughter. You know, by the time she's in seventh grade, I wish that she would have some other godly friends that could be examples. It's like, well, the age and stage ministries are our ways to say, we want to connect you to the right people. That's the amazing thing about the local church. The amazing thing about the local church is like, you want to go into law? There's like three or four lawyers that you could probably meet in this church that would help you. 
Here's what it's like to be a Christian in law. Here's the unique temptations in law. I mean, that's all we, it's like some medical student shows up here all the time, they're new, it's like, well, let me connect you. Let me connect you to a third year medical student. Let me connect you to a resident. Let me connect you to a fellow. Let me connect you to an attending. Let me, you're married in, in, in medical school? Great. Let me connect you to this other couple that was a little older and they were married in medical school. You're gonna need to know them because you don't know what you don't know. And so we're gonna connect. We're gonna give you a plan. We're gonna pray and we're gonna connect you to people. And then David ends with this. And I'm gonna be unbelievably generous to help you. I'm gonna be willing to sacrifice. And so for the, 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 literally chapter 29 is just David telling Solomon and telling everybody else his financial commitment to see this temple be made. His financial commitment to help his son. I want you to see this. In verse 29, here's what he says. Chapter 29, I'm sorry, verse one says this. And David, the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom, whom alone God has chosen. So David understood that he was chosen and then he understands that his son is chosen. He said, whom alone God has chosen is young and inexperienced. And if I was Solomon, I'd be like, dad, do you have to tell him that? <laughs> He's young and inexperienced. And the work is great for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I've provided for the house out of my, for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold and the silver for the things of silver. And he goes through all the things he's providing. Um, here's the interesting thing. David, in the end of chapter 29, is gonna ask everybody else to give. But he's gonna first lead in giving, right? Because you can't point the way, you have to lead the way. David understood something that I think we all understand, but maybe we need the words for and language for. There's a difference between what's called positional authority and moral authority. Positional authority is do this because of the position that I'm in. So this is like what a bad boss does. A bad boss appeals to his title. Well, I'm the boss. Well, I'm the manager of this. It's like, well, fine, pull that card occasionally, but nobody wants to follow somebody who has to follow, pull the position card all the time, right? Or even in the home, this can sometimes happen. It's like, well, I'm dad, so just do this. It's like, well, say that sometimes, but you don't want to leave with that all the time. Positional authorities just do this because I'm in charge. Uh, that's not what David's appealing to, although he's the king. I mean, he could just say, guys, we're going to all give to this. He appeals to moral authority. Moral authority is, guys, I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not already doing. And you know, that's the, the people that you want to follow. The people that you naturally admire are people who have moral authority in an area. If you have positional authority, but you don't have moral authority, and sometimes it takes a while to see that. You're like, oh, that person just has the position. They don't actually have the moral authority. That you tend to resent them. You tend to not want to follow them. And we would call that in scripture a hypocrite, Right? someone who has positional authority and not moral authority. I mean, this is kind of a silly example, but imagine a overweight, out of shape personal trainer. And you're meeting with them and say, all right, this is how you need to eat. And these are the stretches and do these exercises, run here and lift here. And you look at them and go, do you do any of these? You don't look like you, you look like you went to school and have a degree in this, but you don't look like you do this. Or the financial planner who, you know, is telling you, you, you know, here's what your 401k needs to be, and here's what you save for savings, and here's what you put away for college, and here's your Roth, and, and, and here's your 529. You're like, okay. And then you find out his whole finances are a mess. You're like, oh, you have a degree in this. You go to other people's houses, and you use your financial planning position to tell people something, but you're not doing any of this yourself. It's unbelievably frustrating. So, so what David has is he has a moral authority. He says, guys, I'm going to be unbelievably generous. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. So basically David tells us first why he's giving. He's, he goes, I'm, I'm, I, it's because I'm devoted to God. I'm not giving out of guilt. I'm not giving to ease my conscience. 
Um, I'm not giving out of duty. I'm giving out of devotion. Devotion is like discipline and delight. Like it's a practice, it's, it's a discipline, but I actually really enjoy it. It's a part of his worship. What he's saying is that I'm going to give to what my heart loves. And by the way, that's true for everybody. Whatever, because we don't know ourselves very well, obviously, you know. And so how would you know what you love? Well, you, you could try to tell yourself what you love. You might be honest with yourself. You might be willfully blind and not tell yourself the truth. Um, the way you'll know what you love is you have to go, okay, well, let me actually look at what I did last week with my schedule, and let me look at my bank statement and see where all my money went. And then that, that's how you'll know what you love. So I've got a friend, and his kids uh, go to uh, private Christian school. And we were talking about it at one point, and he said, he said, man, for me, my kids go to private Christian school. He goes, it's my favorite check that I write every month. He said, because I'm seeing, I, I love how it's influencing my kids. I love how their lives are being changed. I love the teachers that are investing in them. I love the friends that they're making. I love the academics and the athletics and the activities they're getting to be a part of. And so though it's a big check, when I write it, I'm excited because I genuinely see it making a difference. That's what David's saying. He's like, Here, here's another way to think about it. We all give to what we're, we love most. Like, you, you know, you want tithing if you're new and you've never heard that word before. Tithing is the Christian word, it means a tenth, and it's the whole idea of giving a tenth of what you have to the kingdom of God. Um, but I actually believe that everybody tithes, just not everybody tithes to the kingdom of God, but everybody tithes to what they love most, right? So I'm, I know it's dangerous to throw out numbers, but I don't know, say, say someone makes $50,000, and it's a, a, a woman, and she's obsessed with her appearance. It's possible for her to tithe to her appearance. That'd be $5,000 for the year, right? All you need to do is outfits and makeup and haircuts and lotions and potions and all that, good. I don't know all that stuff. All of a sudden you spend $5,000, okay, essential oils, all that kind of stuff. And so you say, okay, or how about this? How about, what does the average millennial spend all their money on? Bourbon collections, microbreweries, foodie things like avocado toast, <laughs> travel, and all of a sudden way more. All of a sudden you're like, no, 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 I actually, t I actually give more than 10%, I give 20%. I spend $10,000 this year of my $50,000 income just going away. It's like, so, so what do young couples do? Well, they watch a lot of Chip and Joanna Gaines, and so then they tithe the housing projects. It's like, well, we're just going to give all of our, all, any extra money that we have to making our house look better. What do guys do? Guys tithe to their country club. They give nothing to the kingdom of God, and they tithe to their country club. It's their place of worship. It's their place of community. So everybody tithes. The question is, where do we, where do we, what do we tithe to? Where do we tithe? Now, look what he says here. This is interesting. In verse... Uh, four, he tells us how much he gives. Look at this, 3,000 talents of gold. He, and he says, and 7,000 talents of silver. So he, he gives a, a total of 10,000 talents. Now, here's an interesting thing. He actually tells people, now I'm not recommending that we do this and you have to tell everybody, but he goes public with the exact amount of money that he's giving to the kingdom of God. Does anybody know outside of your spouse what you give to the kingdom of God? And would you be embarrassed if it came out. See, America's an interesting place. America's one of the few places, and if you travel internationally, you realize this, America's one of the only places where we're so afraid to talk about our salaries and our money. So when I went to India, I'd be like in the taxi driver, or actually a rickshaw, it's like a, if you don't want a rickshaw, it's like a very dangerous golf cart, okay? <laughs> That's what it is. Anyway, I, no matter where I went, if somebody could speak English, one of the first questions they asked me is how much money do I make? So, you know, it's just not a big, and they, then they would tell me how much money they made. And we live in this weird society where, and I get it for some reasons, I think the reason we don't want people to know what we make, it's like, well, if you knew what I made, well, then I might be responsible to you to do something with that that maybe I'm not doing, that I don't want to do. Well, fair enough. That might, that now, now you might know why you don't share. Um, but what's interesting is we live in this world where, you know, you get an accountability group with guys and, you know, the, the, imagine three or four guys are coming together and one guy brings up, well, guys, let's talk a little bit about just our sex lives. 
share a little about that, ups and downs of that. All right, let's talk a little bit about, are there any addictions in our life? Is it pornography? Are you drinking too much? Okay, we can talk about that. Guys, let's talk a little bit about our finances and our giving. And everyone's like, you're getting personal. You're getting a little personal here. I thought, right? It's like, that's the one area. It's like, we can talk about everything else. We're not allowed to talk about that. David comes out and says, this is what I'm giving. Now, he says, I'm giving 10,000 talents. Now, as we do the math on this, a talent is 10 years of a worker's wage. From our best calculations, and this was before the 9.1% inflation that we just went through, okay? <laughs> By our best calculations, what we, what we see is that David gave a gift of $5 billion in today's money billion with a B, from what I could find and what I could see, this is the largest gift ever given in church history. David says, I'm going to leave, obviously David's got a unique, he's uniquely wealthy. This is why here we talk about, it's not equal amount, it's equal sacrifice. But David's like, I'm going to give a gift that's going to, well, it's, it, it's an estate, it's, it's an end of life gift in some ways, but it's going to uniquely change his lifestyle and his family's lifestyle for generations because he's going to give $5 billion to this. So look what he does next. He says, well, let me say one more thing about this, is that, that David's giving is different than our giving in the, in the sense that David, than most giving in America, because David's giving is, well, it's planned and it's proactive. Like he's like, hey, I know, notice, he's like, I know, where I'm, I know how much I have. People often don't know that. I know how much I actually have. I know where it is. I know where I could give out of. He's like, I got this treasure. I'm going to give out of it. Most of us are, or most of the American Christians, they're more unplanned um, and more passive or reactive in their giving. Okay, they're passing the bucket, honey. Does it, I got two 20s, right? Guys, we haven't given in a few months. Let's just get on there. What, what would be a good number to give? Versus a, this is a, a, a planned, proactive way that David gives. So the way that I think the best way I've ever heard of this is to think, is giving, a prior, is giving a priority in my life, have I chosen a percentage, and have I made it progressive? Let, let's just talk about each of those. Like, is it a priority? So the Bible teaches first fruits. Give God your first and your best not your last and your leftovers. Uh, but most people, it's like, well, what do we have left? We'll give that, right? Or people think this all the time, especially young people. That, well, when, when this happens in my life, then I'll start to give. I just got to get out of medical school. I just got to get out of debt. We just got to get the kids out of the home. We just got to pay off our mortgage. I just need to move from resident to attending doctor. When my salary goes up seven times, then, then I'll give. And here's the truth, because we've seen this. Nope, you don't give. Because you take you with you everywhere you go. And so you with little money is the same you with lots of money. And so it, it's, I, I have to make this a priority. Now, what's interesting, and this is, I've seen a lot of weird things in you know, 15 years of marriage, or 15 years of ministry, and 12 years of marriage, 15 years of ministry. Um, I'm talking about marriages here. Uh, what I've seen in marriages is oftentimes uh, the wife thinks that the family's giving, and they're not. The wife thinks this is a priority for our family. And Bob takes care of the finances. And Bob's sitting in there every week, and Bob knows we love the church, and I mean, Bob's, Bob's in. And so you find this out all of a sudden, it's like, dude, Bob gives zero. Poor wife thinks she's part of this, thinks their family's generous, and it's like, they don't even know. They never even talk about it. Now, giving has not been a priority in our family. The second is to choose a percentage, right? And here's the interesting thing about choosing a percentage, and this is why this is important. The more people make, the less they give percentage-wise. It's weird. So I think, I can't, I can't remember the exact stats. Give me a little grace here, but it's something like this. People who make less than $100,000 as a family income give something like four to four and a half percent to nonprofits. As soon as you make more than $100,000 as a family, you drop to giving 2%. And it's partly because you, the number keeps getting bigger that you're giving, but the percentage keeps getting lower. 
because it's actually a lower percentage of your income. Uh, this is why, you know, when I was a you know, brand new Christian, I was just always taught, if you make a dollar, you give a dime. If you make $10, you give a dollar. If you make $100, you give $10. If you make $1,000, you give $100. If you make $10,000, you make 1000 If you make 100000 you give 10000 And And what's interesting is, and, and here's, a, let me tell you an encouraging story. Every once in a while in our church, this doesn't happen that often, but every once in a while, we'll get this large gift from some individual or some family, and it'll be a weird number. $34,212.18. I'm like, okay. So then I call, hey, you know, what, what's God doing in your heart, you know, for you to give a gift like that? And they always say the same thing. It's just a tithe. I'm like, just a tithe? I'm like, what do you do for a living? You know, <laughs> I'm going to kill my guidance counselor. Like, what is this? And they'll say, so then I do the math. I'm like, okay, so they just got a $340,000 bonus. Wow. And then they'll say something like this almost every time. Oh, you know, this is just something my mom and dad taught me to do when I was really young. I'm like, well, way to go, mom and dad. Because when he was making whatever he made at, at 15 years old at Chick-fil-A, working 15 hours a week trying to figure out how to give, you know, a dollar from $10, it's been built in this discipline of percentage giving so that when he gets a $343,000 raise, one of the first things he thinks is, I want to give 10% of that to the kingdom of God. And then finally, progressive. And progressive is just, that's the hardest one for some of us. You know, it's like progressive just means that over time, don't just increase your standard of living, increase your standard of giving. And we're not a cult, we're not weird, and increase your standard of giving or living. I get it. We wanted to get the bigger house, fair enough. We wanted cars with leather interior, great. We wanted a nicer vacation, awesome. We wanted a second home, fair enough. But if you're not careful, what happens across time is just people, and you, you know, some of you may, may be surprised, may not be surprised, how much money people can make. And the temptation to constantly, constantly increase the standard of living and never increase the standard of giving. And when I talk to people who are very, very wealthy, they say one of the only ways to make sure that things don't own you and you own things is to over time increase the standard of giving. This is why the Bible talks about tithes and offerings. Well, maybe I could start something else. Maybe I could help someone else. Maybe there's another ministry I could support. Maybe there's a college you know, minister that I could help. It's like, you just think through those things. And, and so what happens here is David gives a percentage, a large percentage, he gives progressively, and it's a priority. Look what he does, verse five, then he calls others. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? So David just basically says, I don't want anyone to give out of guilt. I want you to give out of gratitude. He says this, uh, verse 10, therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Now we're getting to see David's perspective on money and property and possessions. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So David has a stewardship mindset, not a selfish mindset. A selfish mindset is, well, everything that I have is mine. And it's all because of how great I am. But, you know, the biblical perspective is like, oh, really? You're hardworking? Where'd you get that desire from? Well, my parents. Oh, really? Well, how'd you get your parents? Did you choose your parents? No. It's like, oh, well, I went to the best schools. It's like, well, you, how are you smart enough to get into the best schools? Did you give yourself that IQ or were you born with that IQ? You start realizing, wait, everything. What, what if you were unhealthy? What if you were disabled? What if you were born in the 7th century in Tibet? Would you have what you have? You start going, I wouldn't have any of this. 
you start realizing, oh my goodness, all this is a gift from God. So he doesn't have the selfish mindset, he has the stewardship mindset. The stewardship mindset is everything I have, everything I think I own is really from God on loan. That's the stewardship mindset. And, and you see this when you're a parent with your kids, like, you know, you, you kind of get this picture. Whenever you become a father, you, you understand God the Father better and you understand what it's like to be a child. So my kids, I wanted to say every once in a while, but not every once in a while, all the time. They, they, they're, you know, not sharing things with each other. And every once in a while, I'll talk to my, you know, let's just pick on my son. I'll talk to one of my sons and say, hey, you know, you need to share that toy. And they're like, I'm not sharing my toy. I'm like, your toy? I bought you that toy. Yeah, yeah, but it's in my room. Your room? <laughs> I let you live in this house rent-free right? Well, yeah, but I bought it with my money. Your money, I gave you that money. Or if grandma gave it, she asked me if she could give it, and I told her yes. You know, it's a, when you realize I'm going to die, and everything that I have is going to eventually be someone else's. That's where David's going to go next. It changes. Like, somebody else is going to drive your car, or it's going to end up in a junkyard. And when you die, somebody else is going to live in your house. That's a weird thought, but they will. Even if it's you built your awesome forever home, someone else is eventually going to live in it. And when you die, your kids are going to come by and they're going to cry and they're going to take the 10 or 15 meaningful things out of your house and then they're going to put everything up at a garage sale. And if you're wealthy, an estate sale, okay? But it's the same thing. <laughs> and so, so this is what's going to happen to everything in your life. And so that's what David says. Look at verse 15. For we're strangers before you and sojourns. As all our fathers were, our days on earth, this is verse 15, are like a shadow and there is no abiding. So then David prays over his son one more time in verses 16 through 19. And then in 20, it says this, then David said to all the assembly, bless the Lord your God and all the assembly bless the Lord. And then in verse 22, he ends with this. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. So here's the principle at the end. Everybody is generous so everybody can celebrate. And I just want to celebrate our church because a lot of times when you, you know, we don't, we just only talk about money when it comes up in the scriptures here. But whenever you talk about money, there's, there can be this sense of like, you know, we, we overemphasize the few people who are not generous and we don't emphasize enough all of you who are unbelievably generous. We just have an unbelievably generous church and we, I just wanna take a moment and just thank you guys. We, our desire here has been for 100% participation for everyone to say, I'm all in with my time, talent, treasure. And that way, when we build a building or someone gets baptized or someone comes to Christ or the kids ministry grows or we start a new church plan or we have a new ministry partner in some place in the world, everyone gets to go, yes, I was a part of this. And I want you to know that in our church, this is unbelievable. We have over 1,000 families. I didn't say individuals. We have over 1,000 families who give consistently to our church. It's just unbelievable, the generosity of our church. And so that's why we're all able to celebrate together. Now this is, I love this story because here's what the story is. I told you before, I told you at the beginning. It's a story of a dad who has a dream for his son, who gives his son a plan and who is unbelievably generous in making sure it happens. Guess what? Yes, it's the story of Solomon and David, but it points us to the greater story of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Because the story of, of David and Solomon, what is it? Well, it's a dad helping his son build a temple. And he provides everything his son's going to need to build that temple. And that temple takes seven years for, for uh, Solomon to build. But what happens with God the Father is, you know that God the Father, the Bible says, planned salvation and Jesus Christ accomplished salvation. God had a plan. How am I going to save a people? How am I going to forgive sins? And Jesus Christ says, I will accomplish this plan, not by building a temple, but by being the temple. See, Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, he said something greater than the temple is here. Because what was the temple? The temple is a great thing in the Old Testament. It was a bridge between heaven and earth, and it was where you went to, went to go meet with God. That's who Jesus Christ is. Where you go to meet with God is not a place. It is ultimately a, per a person. 
And so we love this story. And when I thought of a story of a father's love for his son, of course, I think of David for Solomon. Of course, I think of God the Father and his great love for his son, Jesus Christ. But I thought, you know, sometimes we just need a modern example of this because we just need it. We need the examples from today. And so when I think of an unbelievably great father and his love for his son, I think of Rick, or I think of Dick and Rick Hoyt. I don't know if you ever heard of Dick and Rick Hoyt. Dick Hoyt was a military guy. And when his son was born, uh, the, the umbilical cord was wrapped around his son's neck. And so there was brain damage and physical damage done to his son. To where he was told when his son was born, your son's never going to talk and your son's never going to walk and he's never going to live a normal life and he's going to be a vegetable and you probably should just go put him somewhere. That's what he was told. And he and his wife said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to take our son, Rick, home. So they took Rick home and they tried to treat Rick like, they, you know, he had dreams. You know, you don't not have dreams for your son anymore because there's something wrong with him because he's disabled. He had all these dreams for his son. And the first dream he had was, well, maybe my son one day could talk to me. And so they invented this machine where the son, he could only move his head. He he could type out, it would take a long time, but he could type out some words and he could talk. And so at age nine, they made this machine for his son. And uh, the first words are like, what's the first words he's gonna say to dad and mom? Is he gonna say, I, I love you guys? What's he gonna say? The first words, they lived in Boston. The first words that the son ever typed on the machine was go Bruins. <laughs> he had been watching, he had been rooting for the Boston Bruins to win the Stanley Cup. That was the first thing he said. Well, they, they, so that, that dream came true. I wanted to communicate with my son. So that dream comes true. Well, then his son finds out, Rick does, the son, finds out that a kid gets paralyzed in school and they're gonna do a race for him. And through the machine, he says to his dad, dad, I want this kid to know that life doesn't end when you're disabled. Dad, I wanna run in this race. Well, there was one, well, there's multiple problems, but the biggest problem was he can't run, he can't walk, he can't talk. So what it basically meant is his dad's gonna have to run this race. Well, his dad had only run one mile in his whole life. <laughs> he said, I better learn how to run. Well, they ran their first race, if you'll show the picture. This picture was taken over 40 years ago and he's 12 years old and somebody snapped this picture. That's Dick, his father, pushing Rick. And at the, end of, at the end of the race, Rick said to his dad, dad, that was the first time in my life I didn't feel handicapped. He said, dad, that when you were pushing me and I was running, it was the first time where I felt like a normal kid and I didn't feel like I was disabled. And guess what his dad said? Well, then I guess we're gonna run a lot more races. And so he, they start running these races and then someone gives him the idea, well, have you ever thought of running a triathlon? He's like, and it, this is what Dick said. Dick says, I don't know how to swim. And Dick said, well, I wanna be a good dad and I want my son to have dreams, so I'm gonna have to learn how to swim. Well, over 40 years, they ran 240 triathlons together. <laughs> you know how long a triathlon is? They ran 68 marathons together. I wanna show you a picture of one of their last ones. And when I think about Dick Hoyt and his love for his son, Rick Hoyt, and I think about somebody who said, I have a dream for my son and I wanna be a father. And basically what that means is I'm going to have to sacrifice a lot for this to happen. What it reminds me of is, is it reminds me of God. Look, if you look at that picture, God is Dick Hoyt and you and I are sitting in that seat as Rick Hoyt. And God says, one of the great things that changes your life was when you realize God just didn't do something for me. He wants to do something with me. And the whole Christian race is like, we can't do any of this ourselves, but we have a God, in, a father in heaven who wants to do something with us and wants to run the race with us. So let's have a God dream. Let's be the spiritual mothers and fathers we need to be and find the spiritual mother and father that we need to find. Let's have a clear plan and let's be generous. Let's pray. 
Lord, we just, we just thank you for examples like Rick and Dick Hoyt that really are just parables and pictures and pointers to the great sacrifice of God the Father and God the Son. We know that when we trust in you, Lord, we, we actually are turned into a temple. <laughs> we are now the place where the presence of the Holy Spirit dwells, Lord. Lord, would you give us the heart to be a church where we want to live great lives and we want to leave great legacies. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.